Good morning, friends. Am I on? I see my husband signaling to me back there. It's so good to be with you this morning. I'm Natalia, and I get to serve here as one of the pastors. And um, I'm just so glad that you're here this morning or that you're joining on live stream. We are going to be talking about um, something really fun, something kind of complicated, and we'll get to that. Um, I can hear that we're getting EQ'd, so thanks for being patient. So um, if you live with someone, you know of the thing called the dishwasher dilemma. I, I hear some like kind of awkward giggling, like I think we're familiar. It's awkward because it's like an in-house conflict situation that happens. Um, so in the dishwasher dilemma or in your household, there is typically one person who we're gonna call like the loading perfectionist. And they believe that there is only one God-ordained way to load the dishwasher. Hallelujah. <laughs> and everyone else who lives with the loading perfectionist believes that the loading perfectionist has lost their, their mind, absolutely lost their mind. It's a dishwasher, like why, why does it matter, right? And the rest of the people who live with the loading perfectionists are what I call dishwasher freestylers. My husband's a freestyler. And what I find is with the dishwasher freestylers, they um, load the dishwasher like they live their life. Like, it's just some new spice every time. It's a little bit different. It's okay, though, because the dishwasher is going to do its job. It's going to wash your dishes, right? Amen. And... I think we know what Carlos is, because <laughs> why? Okay, so there's some people, um, these dishwasher freestylers, they don't even pre-scrub their dishes before they put them in the dishwasher. And fair, fair point, right? Because like, why would you pre-wash or pre-scrub something that's gonna go in the dishwasher? Like that's its inherent function, okay? And isn't that a waste of water in your time to do that? Well, um, to all the loading perfectionists in the room, does that thought like make you prickle? Yes. Or is it just me getting uncomfy up here? My husband, Braden, and I have a group of friends who come over every other week and we play board games or tabletop games together. And we rotate which couple makes dinner, but we always meet at our house. So that means that this dishwasher situation is always kind of in a variety of places when I end up making it to the kitchen. And sometimes, instead of a round of a game, I'll do the dishes, and then other times I'll decide, you know what, it's okay, I'm going to come back to it later. But without fail, every week that they come, after they leave, I am left in the peace of my kitchen, and I do something. Can you maybe guess what it is? I unload the whole dishwasher, everything, from like eight people in a meal, 10 people, anyway, unload it, it goes in the right side of the sink. Only the right side, by the way. And then one by one, I take the dish, I'm gonna scrub it, and then load the dishwasher the correct way. So you can guess what I am. Anyway. If you are married to a dishwasher freestyler, Chances are, or if you live with one, right, chances are that it's the simple things in life that fill their hearts with joy and contentment. While the dishwasher loading perfectionists often need to achieve great accomplishments or, you know, literally climb a mountain, something just excessive in order to feel the same degree of pride and joy and accomplishment, right? 
Um, I took a picture of my husband, sorry, I'm adjusting this. I took a picture of my husband um, a couple of months ago, this is the picture, when um, he discovered that Lord of the Rings Online released new content. Do you see the way that he felt, like this genuine, <laughs> he felt so good and I felt so good for him. He adores the works of Tolkien and there is for sure a map of Middle Earth in our living room that is like six feet long. Because that's, that's who we are. And that's what my husband needed to feel loved and seen. And I love that. I love that he is so into Lord of the Rings. So I want to extend an invitation to those of you who are not married, not yet married, don't want to be married, or maybe you've lost your loved one. This message is still for you. I may not be the expert on marriage. I'm actually not, for sure, not the expert on marriage. <laughs> but this morning, I want to talk to you about one of the stickiest, hardest things about having relationship with other humans. This morning, we're going to consider some questions that, for some of you, you might want to write down and take time to think about or journal about another time. I know, for me, I need to journal to really like process things out. So just giving you a heads up if you like to journal or take notes. There's little notes in the backs of your seeds. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you a question, but before I do, I wanna warn you, when you answer it, do not, I repeat, do not look at the person next to you, especially if they are your spouse or if you live with them. Don't look at them, okay? Like, I need a pinky promise over here. What is the thing that your spouse or the person next to you or the person that you live with does that triggers you, that annoys you to no end. They might do it once a day, once a week, once a month, once a year, whatever, but whenever it happens, you feel the same way, and it's not good. <laughs> it strikes the worst place in your heart, in your mind. Some areas that married people find triggering are areas like money, sex, parenting, communication, chores, emotions, or how to load the dishwasher. <laughs> my beloved Brayden 3D prints with a resin printer, and I have come to discover that I would rather wax my own eyebrows off than smell resin in the house. This is a me problem, I know it, but it's, a, it's, it's anyway. So um, when he is printing something, a print can take two, four, six, eight hours, it depends on what it is, how big it is, how many of them there are. And when he is printing, our HVAC mysteriously picks up the scent of resin and distributes it throughout our whole entire house. Our house isn't that big, and so like when you've got the air pump in, you're like, wow, I smell this. Okay, so for me, I found that I need a really like thorough airing out of the garage, because we've established I don't like the smell of resin, okay? Um, and so Braden is so kind, he does that every time that he prints. He's gonna open the garage, air it out, and then close it. But I think I have a sensitive nose, or something, a me problem for sure, that um, I still smell it, like, you know, or like your clothes kind of hang on to the smell or whatever. And I don't know that anyone else smells it. Maybe I'm even imagining it. Like, I don't know. But um, so every time that he prints, um, I'm saying this like looking him dead in the eye, so we're just having like an admitting moment. Um, I sneak down to the garage and I open it again and air it out again and then close it. But I like really try to do it when it's not going to be like frustrating, you know, like he's getting ready, like brushing his teeth or something, and I'm like, yeah, he's occupied. I'm going to, like, go do that now. Anyway, we just are having a moment of transparency. Okay, so what is it that your loved one does 
that triggers you. It might be more serious than the smell of a printer in your house. And it might make no sense at all, but man, it fills you with an intense anger or an intense response. And I'm going to be using the word trigger this morning to describe an experience of our loved ones saying or doing something that drives us nuts or evokes a strong response from us. But I know that this term being triggered is kind of like a buzzword right now, and it has been for a little while. And so I just want to ask you if it's one of those words that you hear it and you're like, I don't want to hear it. Just know that we're going to be using it for a specific purpose in describing a specific experience. Carlos shared two weeks ago that the sheer closeness of marriage makes marriage complicated. So when our spouse says or does something that is hurtful, frustrating, or wrong, any of us like get really frustrated when something feels wrong or unfair, that's my hang-up. If something feels unfair, I'm, I'm going to come after you. <laughs> and the time between our action and their, my, their action and our emotional response can be faster than a blink of an eye. It's quick, right? So what do we do? What do we do about that? Like, we, we don't want to feel that way all the time. Maybe we want our spouses not to do the thing, too. There's that. But in James 1.19, we find a helpful response. The book of James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's also only five chapters long, so it's a quick read if you're interested. And James was about the brother of Jesus. And so as James was writing the book of James, um, his goal was to really come alongside people who were new to the Jesus thing, the faith thing, and help them jumpstart how to have healthy relationships with other people. So in James 1.19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Maybe you've heard this one before. Maybe it's fresh. I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, I'm like, that is great, yes. Highlighting, writing that down, might even like Instagram it or something. I was gonna say tweet, but I don't think I have a Twitter. Um, but anyway, um, we read these things and we're like, this is great, I need this. But like, what do, you, what do we do to take that into action? Like. You know? So we're going to talk about this, that this morning. And another one of those great tactics is soaping. So here in James, he is explaining how to pause when our spouse does or says the thing. Or one of the things, because there could be more than one. There probably is, actually, that triggers us. How in the world are we supposed to respond? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Thank you, James. How do we do that? Well, um, in this series, Us in Mind, we are reading a book together called Us in Mind, and that is what our marriage groups on Sunday nights um, is studying together. And it is written by um, an author named Ted Lowe, and he shares that there is actually something very complicated and very quick happening in our brains when we get triggered. So when our spouse does the thing, our amygdala reacts. And the amygdala is a part of your brainstem. It is pretty awesome, but also a little catastrophizing. It's like me when I have too much caffeine. Nothing is good. It's just chaos. So the amygdala is connected to the brainstem, and its job is to protect us. And it's also what produces that fight, flight, or freeze reflex that we experience when we encounter hard things or frustrating things. 
But sometimes when our spouse has triggered us or maybe when we've triggered them and our response is to do one of those things like fight, we wish that weren't the case. And we wish that we didn't experience that with our spouse. When the amygdala is engaged, like in a triggering situation, it responds to a situation before consulting with the cortex, which is the part of your brain that thinks logically. So when, in many cases, we have couples where we say, like, opposites attract, ha, 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 y'all, we have a lot of opportunity to get triggered, right? I remember when Brayden and I were first dating, I had just taken the Myers-Briggs personality assessment, and I was in this cool process of self-discovery, learning about myself, learning about him, and so I asked him to take the test because I learned that there are actually some like articles that will show you like the best matches and like the worst matches for Myers-Briggs. And um, like, you know, the most and least compatible. And it turns out that matching an ENTJ, that's me, with an ISFP, that's my husband, is deeply ill-advised. <laughs> Due to the complete opposition of personality, and needs. Looky there. Well, we thought that we would be different, right? Like, it's just a test. It's like a ballpark of who you are. It's not exact. We're for sure different. But years later, when we got married and um, moved in together, I discovered that we, in fact, are not different than the personality test warned us. The ISFP, that's my amazing husband, prioritizes living in the moment fun, being present with the people around them, and just having fun experiences. While the ENTJ, that's me, is focused on task, decision-making, and planning. So you can imagine how these traits have been in constant opposition for the last 11 years. But thankfully, we have an amazing community, counselors, friends, you, and a God who has created space for a unity that is greater than these differences. I want to share with you the earliest picture I can find of us. I believe this is the day that Braden asked me to his senior prom. He played me a song on his guitar and got us Panda Express, which was like our favorite food at the time. <laughs> Fun memory. Being triggered by our spouse is not actually the problem, though. How we react without accessing the thinking part of our brain is the problem but we react so quickly. Research shows that when we're triggered, it takes six to eight seconds for the amygdala, that brainstem part, to relax enough to get us back into a calm space. The amazing thing, though, is that we can train our brains to shorten the time it takes to calm that fight, flight, or freeze reflex. We can train our brains to pause instead of reacting immediately. So here, here is the AR or the action required to change our response. If the process is that we are triggered and then we respond, what if we added a pause in the middle? Remember, James said, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So if we could add a pause, we could remove or at least reduce our need for apologizing and repair work after fights. The Gottman Institute found that attempts at repairing a situation that is breaking apart looks like any statement or action, silly or otherwise, that prevents negativity from escalating out of control. In some relationships, 
that looks like saying something silly or like if you're having a, I call them discussions. I don't really call them arguments or disagreements. We call them like discussions, but I'm a little bit red in the face at the same time. Um, so when we're having a discussion, maybe Brayden or I were like, oh, look how cute Chester, our cat is. Look at what he's doing. And you know, sometimes if we do that, that make, might make us feel like, oh my gosh, we're fighting right now. Like, what are you doing distracting me? Thank you, I'm like ready to go toe to toe. But that's actually a repair effort. And it's something that says, Hey, remember how we chose each other. Hey, remember how I love you. Hey, remember how I care about you. Hey, look at our sweet little baby cat. It seems silly, but it is an attempt to repair a situation. This attempt at repairing usually looks like pausing to de-escalate a situation. And there are a lot of different ways that we can do that. So here are some examples of repair attempts. Let me press pause. Can I redo that? Let's pause. I'm sorry, I can tell that I just hurt you. Let's pause. This isn't your problem, this is our problem. Let's pause. I'm getting defensive. Could you maybe say that in a different way? Let's pause. I need a break, but I promise to come back when I can talk about it calmly. The thing that all of these statements share is that we are taking responsibility for our words and our actions. And it's communicating that we're on the same team as our spouse. It's that thing that you've maybe heard of, it's not you versus me, but it's us versus the problem. We become defensive when we perceive a threat or something that we have to protect ourselves from. So if we can communicate to our spouse that we love them so much that we are going to set aside our offense or our preferences in order to hear them and acknowledge their emotions and ours and then problem solve as a team, we can really change the trajectory of fights or triggering conversations. Throughout our lives, many of us have felt deeply alone because at the end of the day, that's why we married our spouses, right? so that we would never be alone. Because they were so wonderful, we couldn't stand spending a day or a lifetime apart. You and your spouse may be in a sweet, tender season of marriage, or you might feel like things are okay, or things are coasting, or maybe things aren't great. This skill of pausing has the power to salvage a relationship and deepen even the healthiest marriage. So let's break down James's message. The first thing that he says is be quick to listen. So when Brandon catches me airing out the garage for a second time, and maybe he gets frustrated, my first impulse is to stop listening. I'm like, you know what? He doesn't understand me. He doesn't really hear my needs. If he's getting frustrated, I'm in the right. It's not my fault that I'm so sensitive to smells. I didn't choose that, like who would? But if I can pause my thoughts and assumptions about my husband's feelings and intent, I can have a better chance at seeing what's really going on, at what's frustrating him, maybe even hurting him, and I can learn how to get out of my perspective and into his. Pausing and stepping into our spouse's perspective doesn't mean that their response or that what happened wasn't hurtful, 
But pausing gives us a better chance at getting on the same page as them, as hearing them out or empathizing. And getting on the same page sooner is in favor of the relationship. Ted Lowe states that our spouse's frustrations speak to something that matters to them, something that goes deeper than their angry words might communicate. Anger and frustration are often a front to an underlying hurt, fear, or vulnerability. So I started to ask myself, what if Braden gets frustrated because I'm making his favorite hobby, one that communicate, he communicates love and creativity with, more difficult? Because when you cool the garage to air it out, if a resin, is, a resin print is not completely cured, it can cause it to delaminate, which is meaning it's going to make it harder for him. It's going to make it the thing that he's made come apart. What if I'm making him feel like the smell of what he creates isn't worth it to me? Or if we globalize that, what if I'm making him feel like he's not worth it to me? Because sometimes that's how it feels. Even if we're frustrated over something outside of us, it can feel really personal. I wonder how he feels when I like paint my nails or eat yogurt. Those things kind of stink. I actually hate the smell of yogurt. Um, or when I move all of his painting supplies off of the dining table, or if I stuff his sculpting work into the garage because, I don't know, we're having guests over, or I just want a clean table for a night. How does he feel? What can I do that shows him that I am proud of his work, his art, his creativity, his time, his interests? I mean, is having an aesthetic house really worth him not feeling appreciated? Sometimes we've felt that way in our lives. Maybe it was when you were a kid. I don't want my husband to feel that way. So pausing and listening might humble us. It might produce feelings of empathy or even regret of decisions that we have made or things that we have said. But our job as a spouse is to dig one layer deeper in a situation than anyone else because we can because we should, because that's what we said yes to. And the privilege of being a spouse is getting to be a testament to their story. They don't have to explain themselves as much because you were there. You were there the day that their dad died, the day that they watched a dream wither away, the day that they did something they never thought themselves capable of. You were there to see it and feel it with them. But maybe you don't know what is triggering that response for your spouse. Maybe it's unclear or they've never communicated an experience, emotion, or need before. Maybe the last time that they tried to explain themselves, you responded defensively or didn't have time to listen. I often find myself saying, hey, I'm in the middle of something. Hey, can we talk about that later? Hey, can we blah? I'm putting him off. I'm saying, I don't have time to listen to you. This is the time to hear them out, to ask seeking questions in a tone of care and empathy. So instead of passing an emotional reaction, let's pause and listen and give our spouse grace. Most of us weren't taught relationship skills growing up, right? What we got to witness was our parents or guardians' best attempts at marriage and communication, and every attempt is imperfect. So unless you um, took Relationships 101 or went to school for counseling or something like that, we need to give our spouses some grace. And even if they did, we should give them grace. 
Tableau notes that oftentimes married couples only talk about frustrating things in the middle of frustrating things. Why do we do that, by the way? If we were to listen, not only in the middle of conflict, but at other times as well, we might discover something about our spouse that helps us to really understand them. Two weeks ago, Carlos shared that according to the Apostle Paul, loving your spouse is the equivalent to loving your spouse, yourself because you and your spouse become one in marriage. So I want to take that statement and extend it a little further and ask, what if by learning to empathize, listen to, and forgive your spouse, we might actually learn some skills to empathize, listen to, and forgive ourselves? Because when we're being hard on ourselves, it's really hard to hear our spouses. The second thing that we learned from James is to be slow to speak. So when we are triggered, our communication is powerful, quick, and typically unconscious, or we're not putting a lot of like logical thought, it's the emotional thought, right, or response. So remember earlier when I asked you, what triggers you? Like, I said, don't look at the person next to you. Don't look at them, we need some blinders. That was because what you might have communicated, and maybe did anyway, because honestly, when a pastor tells me not to do something, I feel like I'm gonna do it. Like, <laughs> for sure about to make a face to my husband. Anyway, but when we communicate, even with the look, it matters. When our spouse does something that makes us prickle or angry or furious, in that moment that we pause, try your best not to speak with your body language or with verbal communication. There are varied statistics that state that somewhere in the field of 93% of communication is nonverbal. It's a lot of our communication. And our spouses know when we're angry without us saying a word, and we know when they're angry without us saying a word, right? It's all about the body language. I know that Brayden is frustrated if he furrows his eyebrows or has a tight jaw or a quick shrug of his shoulders. I know like, oh crap, I just, I, I did something that frustrated you. And he knows when I'm frustrated too. But this also means that we can express care, empathy, and love without words. Everything from a smile to looking them in the eyes to having open body language, those all say, hey, I care about you and I want to hear you. Tableau states that one of the most powerful parts of pausing is it will lead to a response versus a reaction. Reactions are automatic. They come from that fight or flight part of our brain. But a response birthed out of a pause is intentional. In Proverbs, the author writes that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I think this extends to nonverbal communication too. How can we respond softly? The third thing that James guides us to do is to be slow to become angry. And we actually find this theme hundreds of times throughout the Bible. It's one of those things that like, as we look, I'm like, ooh, I think God really wants us to get this one. Be slow to become angry. There are a couple places in Proverbs I'm going to share. One says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. And a commonly quoted verse in the context of marriage is Ephesians 4.26, which says, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry. And I wish that telling ourselves, don't get angry, don't get angry, was enough to turn off the amygdala's strong response, but it's not. We have to be really specific and honest 
and ask ourselves, what does anger or frustration look like on me? How do I respond when I'm triggered? Am I loud, passive-aggressive, distant, sarcastic? And the best way we can learn what that looks like on us is just by asking our spouse. The cool thing about all of this is that we get to choose how we respond to our spouse in hard situations. Even though God made us with a brain that respond, reacts quickly to protect us, we can retrain that. We can shorten the time it takes. We can choose the words that we use, the faces that we make, the tone of voice, and maybe even the outcome of the argument. So I want to invite you to consider choosing to respond with empathy. Consider choosing to listen. Choosing to ask non-threatening questions about what's going on. And in this pause, there are different things that you can do that will help your fight or flight reflex to calm down. The goal is just to look for something that takes at least eight seconds so that your amygdala can relax and your cortex can come back online. So here are some ideas. You could take a break in the conversation. You could take a full deep breath. You could move your body. You could journal your thoughts. And you could remind yourself of the Philippians 4-8 filter. If you choose to take a break, I want to remind you that it's for the purpose of calming down. It's not to manipulate the other person into an apology or whatever response that you're hoping for. The break is for us to choose to calm, pause, and think logically instead of emotionally. Taking a deep breath as an option, it activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which just tells your brain and your body, I'm safe. It's going to be okay. I don't have to get defensive. And taking a deep breath can also help slow down your breathing, which can help you, make, uh, help you think more clearly. When I'm anxious or, have, or angry or have any of that energy running through my brain or my body, I have to run, like go for a run. Anxiety and anger produce epinephrine in the brain, which causes excess energy in the body. So moving our bodies can really help release this and help us set us up for conversational success. Remember, I called a conversation, not an argument. And then the purpose of the Philippians 4-8 filter, as Carlos shared two weeks ago, is to filter our thoughts about our spouse through a lens of God. So if you missed Carlos's message two weeks ago, I want to encourage you to go listen to it. It is on YouTube and Facebook and Apple Podcasts. Okay. If you think, wow, Natalia, all of this is easier said than done, or who am I to talk? We've only been married for five years. I would say fair point. We are on a journey. But I want you to know that in the midst of life and love and loss, I have diagnosed anxiety disorder and OCD, and Braden has ADHD. We are what the young people call neurospicy. <laughs> but sometimes it just feels like a mess. It's hard. So I want you to know we're working on our marriage alongside you. We have seen the fruit of these practices, and we hope that you take the time to try it and see them too. And we're praying that you do. And I also want to acknowledge that we don't have kids yet. There is a whole part of this game that we have not experienced. But we want to, so you can check in with us in a couple of years and like see how we're doing. Might need a lifeline or like some therapy or something. 
But I want to invite you to consider, what if we lived this way? What if when your spouse or your loved one, when they say or do something that triggers you, absolutely infuriates you, you paused instead of reacting? What would your marriage look like? Parents, what if you modeled this to your children and your adult children? What if you responded to your adult children like this when they share something with you that you don't understand and is completely confusing or triggering? We don't have to agree with the people around us, but we get to empathize with them. Kids, what if we paused when our parents are driving us nuts and listened and empathized? In the book of Psalms, King David expresses his journey with God through song. The ups and the downs, the beautiful moments where he followed God, and the painful ones where he turned away from God. And over 70 times in Psalms, there is this Hebrew word, silah. And the meaning of it is um, not really agreed upon across theological circles, but the use of it is consistent and pretty clear. David writes silah as a pause. And then he proceeds to turn his focus on God and praise him. Some say that Selah is an instruction on the reading of the text with the meaning of stop or pause and listen. So what if we pause and listen together? Listen to our spouses, listen to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that in every difficult situation, we have a choice, even when it's hard. And so we ask that when we are triggered by a loved one, by our spouse, by our friend, by the people that we live with, by whoever, that you will help us to pause and take a deep breath and do one of those practices of pausing and help us to hear what is going on with the person in front of us. Because as Ted Lowe said, things are usually deeper than we can see or than we know. So when we have a strong response, and they're feeling something hard. So God, we ask that you will help us to set aside our anger or frustration or whatever just drives that response in order to be able to truly hear and see the beloved people that you've put in front of us. God, we just want to extend an invitation. If there's anyone here who is new to the Jesus thing or has not said yes to God, if you're interested in knowing what it's like to have this kind of peace where you can pause and to have this compass of Jesus who's standing beside you in every difficult situation, if this is your first time saying, hey, I want to know Jesus, I want to invite you to look up and make eye contact with me because we want to agree with you and pray with you. I see you. Today is an opportunity to choose something different, an opportunity to choose you, to choose to pause, and to be slow in the way that we respond. So God, we just ask that you will be with us in every situation that triggers us and just evokes a, small, a strong response. We ask for um, grace on the part of the people who are with us and experiencing it, and we ask that you will just grow patience and grace in us. We're so thankful for you, Father. Amen.